0: There's nothing weirder than a foreigner who is more Japanese than a Japanese person. It's just, why are you doing this? But when you're getting to do things yourself, you're looking at your interests and how they help you understand Japan, you're you're being yourself and you're already unique and crazy and wonderful enough as a person. That's all Japanese people want to know about you. They want to know why why you do this and that. They don't want you to do the things that they do. They want you to be yourself, but you know, learn how to talk in your way and do whatever. So I guess find your interests, be yourself.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydie Buchleman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Colin Savage. Colin is a globally minded, locally focused leader with eight years of experience in Japan, and he specializes in business development, communications and marketing, digital development, leadership, research, and strategy. His intercultural experiences aren't limited to just Japan, however, so be sure to keep listening to learn even more. But before that, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we looked at the phrase kaoga hiroi. Ka o ga hi. Kao, ga hiroi. Kao typically means face, though here the translation is notoriety. Hiroi means vast or wide, and ga is the particle that marks the preceding word as the subject, which makes the literal translation of this phrase a wide face. In actuality, what it means is that someone is well known, has a diverse set of connections, or is otherwise well connected. In this episode, I want to introduce the word. Kotowaza 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 A kotowaza is a proverb or saying. One of the more well-known ones related to Japanese culture is perhaps the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. There are many kotowaza in Japanese, but be sure to keep listening to hear which one has been most influential for Colin in his experiences in Japan and abroad.
0: My name is Colin Savage. I am a born and raised uh, Canadian guy. Um, I don't normally use the word Canuck. So well, maybe, maybe I just did. I grew up in the middle of Canada, in a province that a lot of people can't pronounce but everybody can draw Saskatchewan. Uh, it's beautiful rectangle, beautiful big skies. And I was here uh, until my early twenties. And I, when I finished university uh, the first time, and I headed off to Asia. So I, I then spent about ten years in Asia proper, uh, in a few different countries. Um, most of my time was spent in Japan, uh, which I love. It's like my second home now. And then I spent another ten years or so. And I'm going to date myself. I spent another ten years or so, uh, really based in the UK, but working a lot across Europe, uh, across Africa and the Middle East, and of course back with with some connections in Japan. Most of that time, interestingly enough, with a huge uh, Japanese insurance company. And then in 2015, uh, with my lovely wife Chiaki, who I met when I was living in Japan, um, and our two kids who were born in the UK, but raised there and in Canada and in Japan, uh, we moved back to Canada to to do what a Nichan or an older brother should always do, which is uh, take care of their parents, um, and so I'm happy to say they're doing lovely, and we've now been here for six years.
1: So, how did you end up in Japan specifically, coming out of college?
0: So, I'm going to be I'm going to be all open book here with you. Uh, it was, it was literally the last plot of land before I had to give up on my Asia stuff and come back to Canada. When I originally went, well, when I went to Asia uh part of it happened because I was in an English and French literature program and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do so I had somebody say hey you know like why don't you just you know do a do a short certificate or a diploma and teach English as a second language and I thought well yeah that's that's kind of cool I, I always enjoyed meeting different people I worked Unlike a lot of people in in Canada, and I'm just generalizing here, but there's there's sort of this program where if you're in kind of some programs in university, you would go and work for like a government employer or you'd work um, even in the private sector through the summer to gain work experience. And but that really wasn't an option for somebody in the liberal arts. You had to be in administration or commerce or business so I didn't really have a choice. So I, I tended to go to the Canadian Rockies, particularly Jasper and Banff National Parks. They're a worldwide draw. They pull people from all over the place. So I had a cool job. And I also just met people from everywhere. I, and I got to use the horrible schoolboy French that I learned and really figure out that what you learn in school isn't what you use in the street. And I also learned, I started getting... Turned on to this whole idea of learning language, so I started learning German on my own. I started learning Spanish, and then there was there was Japanese. People were starting to come over in bigger groups. So anyway, revert back to school time. So back during term time, I'm in Regina, and I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And I so I take this this kind of like weekend course for six months, and I start teaching English. And what happened was there were some immigrants. It's not a it wasn't a big draw at the time. The prairies are kind of uh, brutal in the winter and equally in the summer and not very big cities. So we didn't have a lot of like proper immigration, but what we did have were students who came to Canada who wanted to learn English and they didn't just want to do it for fun because those kids would go to Toronto, Vancouver, Los Angeles, they go to cool places. So we had some pretty serious students. Um, And ironically, one of the biggest groups we had were Thai students. So I started teaching them. I got really close. We were kind of the same age. Uh, And then they said, we're like, what are you doing after school? I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe I'll continue. Maybe I won't. Uh, Side note, one of my advisors in school at one point told me, get out. (laughs) Get out while you can. Um, You can always study later, but you need to leave. So I took his advice and I went to Thailand. I knew nothing, this is gonna paint a simple picture too, I knew nothing about Thailand. In fact, I don't think I've ever really spent a lot of time. I have a lot of books in the background that nobody can see, but almost none of them are travel guides. So whenever I've gone anywhere, I have never really been a travel guide kind of dude. Uh, So I went to Thailand and I had these like four or five things in my head where I'd show up, there'd be no foreigners, I'd learn Thai in six months, You know, it would be awesome. And I landed in Bangkok and it was shirtless Australians, um, Burger Kings, 7-Elevens and other things. And I was a little disappointed. I really enjoyed my time there. I met some wonderful Thai people. I learned um, some cool Thai phrases about work hard, play hard, which they really embody. But after a while, it was enough. And so I I left and I went to Myanmar for about a year and a half and then a couple other countries before to answer your question, I ended up in Japan, which literally was the last piece of piece of earth before I had to go back to Canada with my tail between my legs and said, say, I didn't succeed in Asia. So my time in Japan actually was far longer than any other country. I was there for almost almost eight years. It was life-changing, <laughs> I think is the way to put it. I can't really imagine myself today uh, not having a connection to Japan. And that's not simply because it's like my second home and my family and everything else. But it's really a part of who I am. So I and I did I, I didn't find I know some people have. Uh, perspectives on Japan where things are narrow and you know there's you're kind of pigeonholed like hey you're either a student or you're a teacher or you're not a student (laughs) so they they kind of get a little uh, people get this view that it's like that and that was entirely not my experience it was literally Colin what do you want to do and how do you want to go about doing it and what can we do to help you get So I did everything, I think, in our couple of our past conversations. I, I spoke a little bit more, but I'll keep it brief from, you know, teaching English and French, uh, running, a, running a bar, running a couple of consulting businesses, working as a court interpreter, living in a, living in a temple for six months almost at one stint. Uh, so, and I had no limitation, despite the fact that I stand out like a sore thumb being six foot three and looking how i look the nail that sticks up gets hammered was never a kotawaza that mattered to me so that's why i stayed as long as i did i always planned to stay as long as i could in japan until i started to get a little bit uh, it started to maybe not suit my purpose or i what was working for me wasn't working for them And I always wanted to leave before I became one of some people I've met who just spend their time bad mouthing a place that doesn't really deserve it. So that kind of opened my eyes up to, you know, you need to, you need to find your place, Uh, you need to work to find your place and you need to listen twice as much as you talk and be open to being wrong and learning how to understand how other people do things because I could read as much as I read, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to apply to everybody I bump into. Sorry. Hopefully hopefully that was answering your question there. Um, You'll see that I'll have very long and colorful answers.
1: (laughs) No, That's great to hear because especially among foreigners in Japan, as you said, people tend to feel pigeonholed, like you have to fit into these very clear categories. So it's great to hear about a different experience in Japan, somebody who's been able to explore and try different things in the country.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think, and I mean, I guess there's two, I've made two kind of caveats to that. The first one is, I never lived in Tokyo. I never lived in Osaka. I never lived in Kobe. And I spent some time in Kyoto, but at the tail end of my term there. So their experience in those big cities is foreign to me. I don't know what that's like. I, I, I don't know what it's like to walk down the road and find a tower records and be able to buy my newspapers that are like the English paper. Like that's the only thing I could get to me where I lived in Kanazawa on the West Coast was my copies of The Economist. And that was literally the only English magazine I could get delivered to. me. So I, I don't know the challenges that they've had. I'd like to better understand what that's like. I think one of the things that maybe would have happened to me is I probably wouldn't have learned Japanese as well as I think I did um, because people would be more interested in speaking to me in English or I wouldn't be, you know, kind of isolated um, with those around me saying like, what are you trying to get at? And having someone help us out, it was really up to me. So I think that's part of it. And then the other pigeonhole thing is, You know, you got to, if you're going to live somewhere, I I believe you need to make it your home. Like, I've never, I've lived in a lot of places and for crazy different durations of time. And I know from my own experience that in the seven countries I've lived in and the 70 that I've done long-term projects in, uh, the ones that I don't really know anything about and the ones that I don't have a really good recall are the places where I said to myself when I was landing or very early on, I'm only here for a month or I'm only here for a couple weeks, or it doesn't really matter. And as soon as I, and it makes no difference in the duration. I spent a month in, in the Congo. Uh, it's one of the most colorful times I had ever spent. And... It's not particularly long and I don't I didn't learn any you know, local language very well and I don't have a whole lot of friends. But I had an idea that was like, hey, like I might be here for a long time, so I better get adjusted. I better find my local cafe. I better make some friends. I better watch children's TV so I can learn some phrases, um, whatever tricks. And that is way more impactful than I spending six months or more in other countries where I really don't know. So that, that's kind of the two tips I would say is, you know, get outside of the big centers and decide, is this somewhere you want to live and make your home or is this just a temporary stopover?
1: Yeah. Is there anything more that you can tell us about that specifically? How do you go about making a place your home? Is it more of a mindset, as you mentioned, deciding when you go into it that this is a place that you're going to invest in? Are there specific actions? You mentioned a couple, but is there anything
0: yeah. else? so i i've never really fit with the whole i mean it's not just north america there's lots of places but the whole like speed like how fast we need to live like we need to get this stuff done um, yeah i mean we all have deadlines and i i try as much as everyone else to meet my deadlines but i also give myself time to observe and i give myself time to look around and depending upon the place and what i see like just like yourself, Lydia. I mean, we're we're multifaceted people. We have lots of hobbies and activities and interests and all those kind of things. And they're not always the the piston or or the, the spark plug is not always firing in every place you go to. So for example, when I when I went to Japan, I noticed, and this is coming from someone again, specifically who to spend a lot of time studying French. I'm not going to pick on French people for being snooty about their language. That's just a stupid generalization. Um, and I try to avoid generalizations as much as I can, but it does happen. Right. I never had that happen to me once in Japan. I had people look at me with that sort of tilted head, eh? you know, like what? And they would ask me, why do you know that? You know, or why do you why are you saying it in that way? because i tried to find something and i i'd said it in how i thought it should be conveyed and it wasn't really the right way so we ended up having this little kind of blip in our our conversation but you know as to your to your question like that was one of them like when i went to japan one of the things i thought was like wow like this country the literature here is crazy like it's just there's so much history like the first the first real diary ever written by, I can't remember her name, but you can probably help me out. Um, You know, like thousands of years ago and this crazy language that's not only has something borrowed from China, but something of their own and something just for foreign words. And so, I mean, being a literature person, um, I went hardcore into reading. I read every Tuttle Shokai English translated novel I could, And again, sorry for the viewers, but like four rows of bookshelves above, behind me are, that's all they are. And I read every single one of them. And when I finished them all, I kind of realized that, hey, that wasn't a bad way to go about it because that taught me how people think. That taught me, you know, cultural values. It taught me about challenges, you know, societal pressures and ideas on romance and and all that kind of stuff that you, when you're just learning Japanese or any language, you're not going to get to that depth. You just can't. So I, I read literature. Um, I taught children. So I learned from the best teachers. Kids don't care how many times you screw up saying something. They look at you funny and then they just keep firing it at you. You know, adults will get nervous and they'll try to think of another way to say it. Kids would just go, they'll point at you. And you're like, what the hell are you pointing at before? Oh, well, yeah, you're, your your shorts are dirty or like whatever stupid thing and i'm like what like what do you mean and then they'll point and then they'll pull you know and then they'll poke and then they'll do so i was learning japanese from little kids eight hours a day at one point and you know and then i'd watch i'd watch japanese children's programs the problem is when my father or mother would call me you know four or five months into it they'd be like hey colin how's it going how are you enjoying japan hi mom how are you today I'm fine. Thank you. And they're like, are you nuts? Like, have you lost, you know, but that's, it was kind of a way, it was a different way to learn at a time really when there weren't a whole lot of YouTube videos or people popping up showing you this, and this is how a conveni works. And here's a Jidohan Hanbaiki and, you know, all of those kind of things. I had to do it. Right. So I I think there's There's a lot of different tools and a lot of different techniques, but what I maybe am getting at the crux of it is like, what are your interests and like, what are your interests and how do those translate into what you could learn about those interests in a crazy different, wonderful country like Japan. And then from there, and it's maybe the final point that I'll make on this is like, be yourself, right? Like it's that jibundashku, right? Be yourself. There's nothing weirder than a foreigner who is more Japanese than a Japanese person. It's just why are you doing this? Like I, I bumped into people who, you know, that was their thing, right? Hey, Colin, do you know the four, five, or I don't know how many kanji there are for for rose? Like, well, no, no one cares. Or they would talk, you know, foreigner to foreigner, they would talk to you in Japanese. I'm like, well, we're like we know English or French or something else. What are we doing? But. When you're getting to do things yourself, you're looking at your interests and how they help you understand Japan, you're, you're being yourself and you're already unique and crazy and wonderful enough as a person. That's all Japanese people want to know about you. They want to know why why you do this and that. They don't want you to do the things that you, they do. They want you to be yourself, but you know, learn how to talk in your way and do whatever. So I guess find your interests, be yourself. Uh, it'll work itself out. You know, or it won't. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things. Mm-hmm,
1: definitely. There are only two
0: options in that situation. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, if you can think of a third one, please let me know. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. So the structure for today's conversation is going to be a little bit different in that it's a lot less structured. So just so everybody's aware, we kind of talked before and we decided on a few topics that might Be interesting for the listeners so we'll just be running through them and seeing how far we can get. Mm -hmm. So the first one that we came up with is actually one that's probably very practical and should be useful for people to hear a little bit about and that is how and how not to use PowerPoints in Japan. It's actually something we haven't talked about before so could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Oh, it's a great topic. Yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm in the hot seat here, but I, I also feel like I'm capable of doing these rapid-fire answers. Um, so uh, backtrack a tiny bit. but So I spent almost eight years at Meiji Asada Seimei, so Meiji Asada Life Insurance Company. And in Japan, that's one of the big four. So we're talking like 40, 50,000 employees, um, multi, multi, multi-billion-dollar company, offices all over the world. Uh, but very traditionally Japanese. So as um, I, I remember listening to uh, Kevin Crowell, his, his podcast with you, I thought was lovely. It was really well done. I'd love to meet Kevin someday. But I, I liked a lot of what he said about, you know, the trying to figure out how you do things and how they do things and, and finding a common ground or, you know, literally just giving up and saying You got your method, it works for you, show me how it works. I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way, but forget everything you have learned about PowerPoint from the Western world, please. It does not work in Japan, particularly if you're doing it in English, but only slightly. Um, We in the West, and I am guilty of this too, the, the PowerPoint or the visuals in the background and you tell a story, right? tell the story that resonates with the audience, make the audience the hero, tell them what you're gonna walk them through, show them how great they are, give them a couple of cool takeaways at the end, great presentation, awesome. Have like four people ask you for the presentation afterwards, almost no one. Um, Forget that, it does not work in Japan. The PowerPoint is a document first and foremost. If you have ever seen, uh, for anyone listening who has been or and will be nodding along, and for those that have not yet been, they will learn fast. You will have put in front of you a 80 slide PowerPoint that will have hundreds of words. Some of them, some slides themselves with hundreds of words or maybe less, crazy complex flowcharts and other things almost like if you'd taken a manual and you threw up on a a PowerPoint bunch of papers. Uh, The reason for this is very simple. It's PowerPoint, regardless of it being a digital medium, it's still gonna get printed off. The world in Japan and business in particular is still very paper focused and it is not a one-time delivery. So when you do a PowerPoint, You will be asked to create one. You will create one. It will go through numerous edits, additions, and other things. The entire audience may have already seen it before you deliver it. You will deliver it almost by reading slides out to people, and then they will probably have very few, if any, questions at the end, and you will be required to deliver that same PowerPoint in a printed version to everyone who's attended. Um, That's just the way it works. So if you are thinking you can put some flashy um, bunch of images and a couple of cool things and some animation, it won't fly. Um, It won't make it through the first two hurdles. If you're working in a Japanese organization, you won't even get that far. If you're coming from outside and pitching to a potential client, partner, or whatever, uh, they'll nod, they'll thank you, and then you'll get a very nice note later on that says, could you write out all of your dialogue and add it to the slides and send it back to us? Uh, because, and the, the other thing that's it's actually quite important or maybe in addition to this is, it's not just gonna be the audience. That document is gonna live for a long time it's going to be circulated wild widely and it's going to need to stand the test of time for a certain period so unless you want to spend you know hours and hours and hours repeating this thing to everyone who asks you for an uh, what happened what did you say on slide 12 what was this on then you better get it all hammered out first and have it be completed. So literally what I'm trying to get at is a PowerPoint. It is just another Word document. It's just in a different format. That's all. Um, It's a little disheartening. I know we have, um, I know I went to business school. You know, other people have. We've spent a lot of money to learn from people to learn how to be storytellers and narrators and all that kind of thing. Doesn't fly in Japan. Not yet. Uh, I know there are a lot of younger Japanese who are taking MBAs overseas. They're learning how things are done. I know, and same with uh, with Kevin's comments about the rotating folks. I dealt with that for many, many years. Just because you study overseas doesn't mean you, you adopt that methodology and you force it on where you're working. It's the reverse. So, yeah, that, that would be it, right? Forget what you learned. More is more, (laughs) I guess, is the way to put it in terms of writing um, and allow time for people to read this before you deliver it, while you deliver it, and after you deliver it, because they're going to be reading it for quite a while, if it's a good one.
1: Thank you for breaking that down for us, because it's (laughs) one of those more important unknown unknowns that people (laughs) will (laughs) inevitably encounter when they get to Japan, because in the States... The PowerPoint presentation itself is—it depends on the person, but a lot of times it's just a prop to use during your presentation, which is more of a performance. Whereas in Japan, the point is the PowerPoint to an extent. Yes, absolutely.
0: And it's like, like, can we know using what I just said? Can you imagine what a Japanese audience that is being fed all of this? would feel if you put up a picture of a girl crying while she's writing a note and said, how does this make you feel? They're like, I don't know. Tell me. You're the one that picked the picture. What do you want us to feel? You know, why are you showing us this? What is it leading to? They're, they're not going to, it's not that they can't. It's that the, the purpose of this is the expert on the issue is telling you everything about it. It's not a you and I discussion on what this is going to feel like and how great we're going to be at the end. That that's not it. They do they have their whole own other thing for those kind of meetings um, and delivery. But but the PowerPoint, honestly, it's uh, just a better looking format than a Word doc. That's that. Keep that in mind. I feel sad saying that now. You know, I really like spending time making powerpoints, but. I can understand. I, I can get it. I, if you've ever sat in meetings where you're the only person that doesn't understand the language being presented to you, it's nice to see words <laughs> at times. It, it's helpful. Uh, we'll find out when the new tech, FANGLE technology comes out. and We're all having it narrated, you know, across the bottom of the screen and recorded and we don't need to worry. Uh, but that's not the case now
1: we're going to be kind of moving on to addressing common (laughs) complaints or observations that a lot of foreigners experience when they go to Japan. And one of the big ones that I hear from a lot of people, I've been lucky enough to not experience myself, Mm -hmm. but there's kind of a, a common phenomenon where if you're a foreigner speaking Japanese in Japan, it almost just seems like people don't hear you. They can't they don't hear you speaking Japanese there's just some sort of barrier there could you tell us a little bit about what that is
0: I often defend Japan that's just how I feel Um, my wife probably wouldn't agree with you she'd probably say oh my god you're always complaining well I mean I I do because I see things at a certain depth and they I I wonder Um, but I often defend Japan and one of the things I defend about Japan uh, comes from my experience teaching uh, English, particularly a little bit French, but French was like university students and stuff. So I, I struggle with the English language uh, method for studying or the pedagogy um, in Japan. I, it, it's, and, and it's not just Japan. Actually, Canada is woefully bad at teaching French in school. It's rote learning. It is you don't need to be able to say this. You just need to be able to read it and write it. Uh, we all know that that's complete garbage because language is mostly spoken and heard rather than written and read. So, but what happens, and, and actually the, maybe the final point is it's all about like translation in your head. Hear what you heard, translate it into what you're comfortable with figure out the answer, translate that back, and hopefully it'll make it in time to catch up with the next sentence, which is impossible. So you gotta feel what you heard and say how you feel. You can't spend time picking the right terms. The problem in, in Japan in a lot of places, and it is improving, is that they're, they, they teach language in a mechanical way. So they teach English particularly in a mechanical way. Uh, and if you're not comfortable Um, in the fluid way that people talk and the immediacy of, hey, you said something, you better respond, then it's really hard to to get over some basic misconceptions. And the first misconception is, well, foreigners don't speak Japanese. They just don't. And and that, for most of the world, is, is correct. But for the foreigners in Japan, it's mostly not correct. There's a lot of people I know that speak Japanese phenomenally well, better than I could ever speak it. And there's there's the two types, right? There's the there's the learner that's very grammatical and very mechanical, and everything is proper, but the announce the pronunciation, the enunciation doesn't flow. And then there's people like myself who are basically parrots who learn, we hear what what it what it sounds like, we repeat it back, and I don't really give a toss or something about the grammar. I don't care. Because I know people don't live and die by grammar. They live and die by meaning and conveying emotion. So I've had it happen to me. I have it happen to me all the time. Uh, I haven't been back to Japan now for a little while for a variety of global reasons. But I have people look. And and the one thing that I would say to people is when you have somebody, a, a Japanese person that you're trying to talk to, and they're doing the I'm not hearing you. The weird thing is they're usually looking at your mouth. They're not looking in your eyes. They're looking at your mouth. And I used to get very annoyed with this and be like, I'm up here, (laughs) you know, up here, look in the eyes, but they're really trying. What is he saying? Like, like, is it coming out? Is it really coming out of that mouth? Like, is it really, is it really getting there? And so my advice would be, well, first is yes, it happens. Uh, Two, it's not only happening to you. It happens to everybody. Three. The Japanese person or people you're talking to—they're really trying to understand. They're—they're not—they're not making fun of you. They're not purposely, you know, misinterpreting. They're really trying, and all you need to do is slow down and simplify. So, if you've got this whole big sentence that you've practiced at home, watashi wa, blah, blah 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 blah, cut it, cut it down, cut it down, right? Cut it down to, like, the the place, the object, and the verb. That's it, right? Simplify it for them and repeat. And each time you repeat, don't do what typically happens, which is people raise their voice. Repeat and go slower each time. Slower the next time until they get it. And most of the time, you'll be surprised. They will figure it out. There will be a, a coming together of the minds and they will go, oh, right. This guy is looking for where to buy the train ticket or he's he's wondering where the park is because I basically went park doko like coin doko where's the park, right? It's not a proper sentence, but it's what people would say. If, if unfortunately you have someone who just isn't getting it, my advice is very simple. Thank them and find someone else. There's 130 some million Japanese people in the country. You will find someone who will try. And if you're really stuck, my advice is talk to a mom or a grandmother. They will almost always become the mom for you. They will give you lots of extra time. They will really intently try to listen. And more importantly, they'll do things that other people won't. They'll gesture right? Like gesturing and doing that kind of almost quote unquote childish stuff. Moms don't care worldwide. They they will do it, right? Are you sick and pointing to your mouth or, you know, your stomach or, you know, your, your head, whatever, like, you know, gestures are pretty universal, but right. Stick to your guns, simplify what you're trying to say, slow down, don't increase your volume. If the person that you're talking to doesn't get it, thanks to somebody else and if you're really stuck a mom or a grandma and they will almost always help you out in fact I can give you a really short anecdote one of the first months I was in Japan living in a very small city on the west coast not Kanazawa yet I had to go to a grocery store I had nothing in my apartment Uh, I had to go to a grocery store I spent part of an evening figuring out like You know, I want to buy simple stuff like, you know, pasta, flour to make pancakes, whatever. Right. I I don't know what to make. So basic things. I spent so much time trying to figure out a phrase that was, I'm looking for syrup for the purpose of pancakes. Can you tell me where this is? And I used a verb that no one other than engineers would use. So no common person would figure it out. Did I end up getting syrup? No. Did I end up getting a lot of other things? Yes. And why? Because I went to the grocery store. I had my little cart and I followed a mom and her daughter as not as a stalker, but I followed them around the store. And I'm like, well, what are they buying? Oh, look, they, they bought Kewpie. What's that? It well, looks like mayonnaise. Okay. I'll get that. I'll get some bread. I'll get this. I'll get this. I literally followed them around the shop. And when I got my four bags of groceries, that was like, Forty thousand yen, which is like a family's monthly shop for one guy. The girl and the mother turned around and looked at me, and she mumbled something that I didn't understand. And the mother came over and she's like, "Like that's for you," pointing at me, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, it's my food." And she's like, "Wow, you're really big." And I mean, I'm showing gestures that our poor podcast people can't see, but you're really tall. You eat a lot. Oh, thanks. I, mean, I don't know what she's talking about, but she had no problem with, like, looking in the bag and going, you know what this is for? And I was like, well, what? She's pointing at the, at the little really spicy mustard that they have. She's like, yeah, this one, this goes really good. And she pointed outside at an Oden stand. This goes really good with Oden. I'm like, I don't know what the hell Oden was. I was going to put it on hot dogs. Well, that would have been, you know, clearing up my cold for sure. But I learned, oh, this goes with that. And when I walked outside and walked past the little Oden stand, I saw, yeah, look, there's there it is, right? That's where it, it goes. So what I'm getting at is, right, you try, simplify your life, be willing to be willing to like learn other things. Uh, and, and you know, look, look around for those that are going to help you, especially with the language. They'll be they'll be there. Um, I have never been so encouraged uh, to learn any language and I'm a multilingual guy, but Japanese is right up there. Uh, when people when you could just say thank you and they would like, hey, hey, come outside, look, this guy can say thank you. And I was like, damn, I want to learn more. Like, I want to talk to these people more because other places like, yes, yeah, so what he can say, he can say merci or he can say, you know, buenos dias or whatever. So what? There's tons of them that know that one word in Japan. It was totally different. Uh, hopefully I answered the question. Uh, If any of the listeners have any further ones, please fire them on and we'll talk about it next time.
1: Yeah, so many great points there. Just one that jumped out to me was the staring at people's mouths instead of their eyes. I actually have that habit now, too, because I lived in Japan and South Korea. And I think they've also done studies that show that bilingual infants or infants that are Mm. being raised bilingual tend to stare more at the mouth rather than the face and yeah, so that actually might be helpful for people who might be having a little bit of a hard time understanding other people. Mm. Is looking at the mouth can actually be much more helpful. It yeah. gives you a lot more information to work with when you're trying to understand somebody else.
0: In a different that, that's a fantastic point, and I and I would say I uh, would make two qu- quick ones. Uh, one is um, people don't really point to their mouth in Japan, right? So so you have to look like you you have to do it without the the, the hand gestures. Um, they'll point to their nose, but that doesn't mean something smells. That means me. Are you looking at me? And the other thing that I find really fascinating, and we can talk about another time, is um, I've read a number of articles now, and I've actually worked with a couple of uh, professor friends in Japan. One of the craziest things that confuses me eternally, and again, it's for another time, is despite the fact that they look at our, they look at our mouth to try to figure out what we're saying. People in Japan, and I am not singling them out because Korea might be the same. But what I've studied for Japan is they can't lip read. Lip reading is extremely difficult in Japanese. Um, I've had to do it working in court, and I can't do it even as a foreigner. And I know when my when my wife and even my kids who have been raised in a few different countries, when we watch uh, shows, or you know, like a couple of weeks ago, we're watching a Japanese anime the The speaker cut out, and I'm trying to fix it while they're watching the movie. And I'm going like, guys, like, what's going on? They're like, well, we can't tell. Like, we can't we can't read the lips. I'm like, well, we can do that in English so well, right? We can we can do it, and it translates. But for some reason, maybe it's just me and the people I know, but I think there's a there's an interesting thing there, some quirk.
1: Yeah, I want I'd be interested to learn more about that because that's not something I've really thought about before either. I know that English, Korean, Japanese, they all kind of focus on different areas of the mouth versus others, so I wonder if that has something to do with it. Just the parts of the it mouth that tend to be more engaged or the throat.
0: Yeah, it <laughs> could be. I mean, it should be like tonal languages have a challenge too because the tone comes from the vocal cords, not from the lips, so how do you do it? And Thai and Chinese and other things might have challenges, but we'll we'll crack that another day. What's right. our next question? All
1: right. So the next observation revolves around inflexible bureaucracy in Japan or what is perceived to be inflexible bureaucracy in Japan.
0: I I should have mentioned earlier on I I didn't, but um, I currently work for an international um, real estate, commercial real estate company. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have any connection with Japan. I'm trying to create one because part of my role in my company is to professionalize certain things. Um, One of those is to professionalize how business development works. Another one is to look at how strategy plays into the company. So increasingly, I am connected with the Asia PAC or the APAC folks, and that obviously includes Japan. Um, But one of the things that I also do in my increasingly limited free time is I'm involved with a couple of startups. And I've always done that. Uh, And one of the things that is always a big issue for startups is bureaucracy. right? All of the officialdom. I got this great idea, um, it's gonna make millions, you know, oh no, now I have to go and get a business license and I have to pay for this and I have to pay for that. Like I mentioned before, in seven countries of residence and 70 of work, every country has bureaucracy. I really honestly don't think Japan is any more inflexible than anywhere else. I think what tends to happen is people, get frustrated a little faster in Japan because everyone is so nice it, it is very welcoming particularly i i mean i worked in government for 6 years in Japan i didn't find any kind of you know curmudgeons and other people that uh, the dmv or whatever they want to call it. it it wasn't like that but what it was is we stick to rules and we have rules and they're there for a reason And if you are how we've kind of been brought up, which is not just to challenge rules, but to go deeper and to look at like, what's the logic behind this? This isn't efficient. It doesn't make any sense to me. You need to explain this. If you're going to take that path in a place like Japan, you're not going to get very far. Uh, Because they don't, they, and again, I'm generalizing, but the, the bureaucratic folks that I know and love, um, but that I know well, uh, that's not part of their job description, right? They're working for the government because that is what they wanted to do. They wanted to serve the public. They're not there to learn the history and every reason why it takes 15 stamps to get a business license finished or why you need to provide four years of past accounting for a company that's only just started. that That isn't their purpose. So if you, if you wanna go and argue those points, go find yourself uh, a government lawyer and go talk to them about it if you really wanna learn. And there's a lot of places where there's a ton of literature where you can figure out the reasons for it or not. But even in our own countries, and maybe this is the fundamental point I'm getting at, is even in our own countries, there are things that I, I, I love this phrase, and I'll, I'll try to not butcher it. It's called absolute presupposition. So there was a guy in, in the UK many years ago called R.G. Collingwood, who was a, a professor of philosophy and history, and he, he dug into things uh, to say, well, what is the point where you get to where someone just says, well, that's just because that's the way it is? So you imagine a child and an adult, and the child says, well, dad, why is the sky blue? Well, it's blue because the light refracts off the blah, 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 blah. You give them a scientific reason, and then the kid goes, well, why? 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 And imagine all of those whys, at some point it gets to, just because, shut up, we're done. And that's the absolute presupposition. It's the same thing with people who believe in God, people who believe in a whole variety of different things. When you get to that, that the crux of it, the absolute presupposition, that's the end, right? We can't go any further. So when we're talking about, you know, like, oh, it's inflexible bureaucracy. Oh my God, they use Hang Go still and they do this kind of stuff. Yeah, but that, that's a legacy thing. That's historical that's got cultural and traditional value. We we do the same thing here. There's no, there's no real difference between a Hanko stamp and a signature. They're both just your seal. Um, so when I hear people say it's inflexible, what I tend to hear them say is, well, I don't understand it, so it doesn't make sense. So they're not giving me what I want. Well, Lydia, if you and I went to the DMV in, in Michigan. And argued why they have to do it. Like, how far are we going to get? Right? Like, we're we're not going to get any better answers. So, what I suggest constantly to people is, it's so much easier if you just learn the system. Just learn the system, go with the system, ask what's needed up front, the full package, and then just do it as you're told. I've helped a lot of people set up businesses in Japan. You know, coach them through all of the licensing and everything else based on what I knew before, I'd probably be useless at it now, but I could, I could help. It's just, it saves you so much time, right? So land, get your, get all of the things you need, make sure that right away you have a nice little piece of paper and a pen and you ask, what are the things I need to get this and methodically go through the list and everybody will be happy. And maybe finally, there's always going to be stuff you don't get, that's okay. Like, I don't need to know everything about how a car works to be able to drive it to work. Right? I know that that's how it's been built. Some are better than others. Okay. But there's a system there that works in a variety of different ways to suit my purpose. Use it as the tool that it is. I I don't know what else I I can probably relay other than, you know, be prepared for things to take time. They, they, they take time. There's no, there's very little ways to expedite things in Japan, uh, simply because that's not how the country works. They really abide by the rules. They believe the rules are there for a good reason, and they're not going to bend them for you or anybody else. So if you've lived in other countries in Asia or Africa or other places like me, and you know that, well, maybe sometimes a bit of money or a little bit of this helps, don't bring that attitude to Japan, please. It's not how it works. People are very proud of what they do and they're very loyal to who they work for. So follow the rules. Everything will be done in time and then you can move on to what's next, um, I guess, is what I can say about inflexible bureaucracy. What do you think? Is that, Does that help? Is that a good answer?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it because at least in my experience in the States. And maybe I was just a particularly bad waiter, which is a very, very (laughs) distinct (laughs) possibility. But I know that people ask you questions. People ask why questions. They ask for clarification. They ask for information. And we're kind of trained to just make stuff up. Like we don't, we, just because we have an answer doesn't mean it's the right answer. Whereas I feel like you're less likely, you're in some ways, at least- when you're dealing with bureaucracy, less likely to come across somebody who just makes stuff up, makes information up just to get the person to shut up. So, yeah,
0: and I I would say that's a really good point because I would say bureaucracy is even one step further because if they make stuff up, they get in trouble, right? Like if they're making, if you're putting somebody on the spot about an immigration issue and, and they make something up just to get you off their back, and someone else finds out that's their job that's them getting in real trouble so i mean i've i've bent the rules in places where i can but when it comes to things like bureaucracy i learned very early on you just follow what you're told right if i got to go if i got to go to a like it doesn't happen anymore i don't even think it's allowed but when i first went to japan we were able to sponsor ourselves so as long as you had a combination of real jobs with contracts and whatnot, you could cobble together enough money a month that would allow you to sponsor yourself so you could stay in the country. The loophole's probably been closed for a good reason. I remember the first time I went and did it, and I had to go to one building and go to the third floor and fill in a form. Take the form to the seventh floor, to another place to get it stamped. Go to the building beside to buy it a kit day basically a stamp right that showed that i paid the government take the stamp back to the first building to the third floor to get it put on the paper take it back to the first floor to show everybody that i did it and then it was done and it was like what the hell like why wouldn't you just but it's because i'm placing upon them my way of structuring things what i'm used to Because I think it makes more sense to do it all in the same place or whatever. But there may be hundreds of reasons why it is what it is. So just follow the rules. Life will be so much easier. And you can enjoy Japan.
1: And my own experience that comes to mind is when I was a student in Japan and, of course, had to go home eventually. So I had to close up my insurance, all of those things. And I guess I still had some time left on my um, government insurance. It's all run through the government if you're not Mm -hmm. aware of how it works. So the person said, oh, we need to refund the amount that's left for your insurance. And I was like, oh, no, it's not a big deal. It's fine. It's probably not that much anyway. And she's like, no, 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 I have to do this for you. So I just had to sit there for a half hour, watch the same lady run back and forth, do a little bow every time she saw me and just like have to run. From office to office to get a bunch of different signatures. And I was just beside myself, like, this is not worth $20. I just want to go home. But it was doing things correctly, getting, making sure that things are done correctly for this.
0: You know, and and I think that's, that's an excellent, that's an excellent example. And I would say maybe the, the last thing that I'll say on this, if we can move on to the next one, if we have enough time is, you know. Like people, like I kind of mentioned before, people are loyal to where they work. also have pride in how they do their job. And so if their job is to be efficient in the way that's been put out in front of them, and that means, I'm sorry, Lydia-san, I need to run back and forth 15 times because that means I've done my job and that's how I'm going to be graded. Well, go ahead. Like, who am I to tell you not to be successful in your job and what you need to do, right? You're here to serve me. This is how you're doing it. Fantastic. I had exactly the same problem with health insurance that I'll limit because of time and also because, you know, maybe there's a statute of limitations. But I, um, as to your point, right, the government insurance, uh, the Kokumin Kenko Hokan, is provided by the government you pay every month. The one thing that nobody really understands is that the first year, everyone pays the same amount of money. Because everyone's on the same boat. Now, that means if I go to Japan as a corporate lawyer and you go there to teach English, our salaries will be dramatically different the first year and onwards. But at the first year, we're all the same. 1,500 yen, 2,000, whatever it is a month. The second year, it gets adjusted. So it gets adjusted to match your first year of earnings when you put in your your tax return. That's something I wish they told us. (laughs) Um, Because when I found out and I was with the government for like six years, I one of the reasons why I'm telling everyone this story about it's not inflexible bureaucracy, it's how things work. I wasted so much time arguing with the health insurance folks to say, you know what, I don't want to be part of this. And they would look at you and say, what do you mean, Colin? So I just want to leave. So, well, you can't like, hold on. I can't leave a health insurance program that I decided to join. And the answer was no. The only way that you can leave this is if you leave the country or you die. And it was like, well, what if I just move somewhere else and I don't tell you? And they said, well, yeah, you could do that. You know, I mean, there's nothing that stops you from doing it, but basically it's you're in it until you leave or you're dead. And so it's another thing, right? That's the rule, right? Why wouldn't you want to be part of the healthcare system? Why wouldn't you want this coverage? We know it's a bit expensive. And my complaint was, why am I spending all this money for something I never use? And their response was, But Colin, you should be happy that one, you have a good enough salary to do that. And two, that you're healthy and you never need us yet. So it was very different perspectives that are both equally valid and help you get a full understanding of why something is being done the way it is.
1: Yeah, that was a great way of highlighting that. But we are starting to run out of time. (laughs) So do you have a specific example that comes to mind of a communication breakdown that you think was due to culture specifically?
0: I really racked my brain for this. And I think there are, there are one or two things. There's either so many that it's hard for me to figure one out, which is most likely the case, or they weren't necessarily like a cultural thing that created communication breakdown it was really me figuring out different ways in my mind to get my point across so i think it was more what i really learned in japan and it doesn't probably come across in a podcast i when i speak japanese i am much more specific than when i speak english like i am really careful in the words that i choose and i'm far more brief. And that's for a lot of the reasons I mentioned before, but it's also because that's kind of how I was taught, right? Um, that's how I was taught it was th- there's I love kotowaza. that's my big thing, right? And one of the kotowaza that I like, and I'm cheating because I'm reading it off a of paper because I couldn't remember, was Kuchiwa wazawai no moto, which basically means the mouth is the source of dis- disaster, <laughs> right? That's where that's where bad things happen. So you, you know saying and thinking something like that it's listen more than you speak right understand that you're in a different place and you should really be trying to learn more than you're trying to explain god knows i've read all of those books behind me and so many more but do i really know a lot about japan no like i i think i can navigate japan fairly well and i can help other people more softly enter it but one of the things that I also learned studying at Kanazawa University when I was doing a master's degree that I never finished. We won't talk about that. Was I, I my professor's office? He had a he had a picture, and I don't remember the phrase, so I'll just say it in English. But it was you know like a hand. Once you learn, you learn one one part of the hand. You realize there's five things that you didn't know, and then you learn one, and just so the more I learn, the dumber I get is basically the the crux of it, and that's kind of kind of where i would say like the communication problems a lot of it is at least where we come from i have to look smart right i have to show everybody what i've read and what i know i I have to have an opinion right i'm not listening to understand i'm listening to respond well we we need to stop doing that especially in a foreign culture where you have no basis for that and i would argue with the smartest people on japan and unless you grew up there and you spent your whole life there, even then you only know a little sliver. So know what you don't know, right? Take your time, listen more than you speak uh, and be very, if it's back to the thing about being, you know, people not understanding you be brief, right? Right. Get to the point, right. And, and be, be okay to, you know, laugh at yourself and laugh at what you don't know because you'll learn it in time, but that's kind of, you know, kind of the process you should really take take to this is it's a wonderful opportunity to learn a lot about a place you don't know and things you could never possibly fathom. So, I mean, that's that's kind of you know, all encapsulating big philosophical thing, and there's all the be determined and everything else. But yeah, I mean, that's communication problems are generally speaking, people aren't listening to be heard, uh and they're they're just blabbing on and on. I, one, maybe my I'll say this quietly people won't know but my my wife has something that whenever we're having a little bit of a disagreement she always brings up and i can never remember the phrase because i'm probably too angry at the time but it's something along the lines of the person when two people are arguing the one that talks the most is the one that's wrong because they're trying to convince the other one of all the reasons why they sh- they should or shouldn't do something, the person that's right knows the right. <laughs> they know they know that they, they had the right thing to say. It's the other one that's trying to convince you something else. So, again, back to the whole being brief thing, which I have not done particularly well during this podcast.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that. That's a great phrase to keep in your back pocket for the next time you have an argument.
0: <laughs> yeah, be sure. Right. Because if you're talking a lot, you're digging your Doesn't grave. Doesn't look
1: good. Yep. <laughs> you're digging
0: your grave. Um, yeah. So I mean, thank you. This is, I know we're probably at our time. So thank you so much for this, uh, Lydia. This was great. I look forward to the second one. I'd also like to to share with you, and if you can, like I have written a book on on Japanese. I wrote it on a specific weird dialect, lovely Kanazawa Ben. If you're interested in anybody else, that would be great. Um, over to you.
1: All right, then we will link that up in the description of the episode as well. And is there anything that we didn't really get to touch on or anything you wanted to quickly mention before we wrap things up for today?
0: Um, no, I think I think one of the things that would be good to hear from listeners, because um, I think this is a really interesting way to do it, right? Like we we managed to find, even with some really different topics, some kind of common threads, So I think for the listeners, like if there's anybody out there that has further questions about very specific or general things, that would be good to hear. I know that you like hearing from the people that listen to the podcast and trying to tailor it to their to their views. There's a there's a couple of other again, I've mentioned Kevin's podcast a couple of times. I think there's some more like corporate things I'd love to discuss with you and your listeners. I navigated both public and private sector i think fairly successfully as the guy that i am in a whole variety of different things and to kevin's point too i'm a generalist that's how i really survive in those kind of areas and i think generalists will rule the world but that's just my opinion so i mean yeah like those those kind of things i think our topics were great uh and i look forward to to hearing about more of them and having to try to shed light on it how to get over them i guess
1: Right. Definitely. As specific as people try to be about bringing up aspects of culture, ultimately there are larger and deeper threads that underlie a lot of them. So it's great to see how they come together in different ways. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much. I had a great time. Hope we can do this again.
0: Thank you very much, Lydia. Thanks everyone and have a great day.
1: that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about what colin is up to and be sure to let him know what you thought of today's conversation and offer any suggestions for topics you would like to hear us discuss in a future episode if you enjoyed today's episode go ahead and share it with a friend colleague or connection on linkedin to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out my link to the new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, Matakondo!